I'm Scott Paul, and this is the Manufacturing Report. On January 20th, President Joe Biden officially assumed office, inheriting a country embroiled by crises on multiple fronts, including a shattered economy and a staggering COVID-19 death toll. But if the flurry of executive orders that the administration has already issued is any indication, President Biden is not wasting any time on correcting course for our country. And with Democratic control of the Congress, Biden has an opportunity to achieve some of his most ambitious plans. In this episode, the Alliance for American Manufacturing's policy team and I forecast what a Democratic presidency, Senate, and House bodes for some of the most important issues facing American manufacturing today. That's next on The Manufacturing Report. I am pleased to be joined by our policy team on the podcast today. We have Riley Olson, who is our Vice President for Federal Government Affairs. We have Brian Lombardozzi, who is our Vice President for state governmental affairs, and we have Scott Bose, who is our senior vice president for government affairs and policy. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. So as we talk today, this is, I think, the first time in you know recent memory that we've had a Democratic presidential administration just sworn in. We have a Democratic House of Representatives and We have a now Democratic Senate with the 50-50 tie to be broken when necessary by the uh, vice president. This certainly is going to have an impact on a range of issues, and in particular, issues within our set of interests, including but not limited to infrastructure, climate, industrial policy, trade both steel-specific and more broadly with respect to China and other agreements. And what I think we will be able to do today is just talk about what we see coming up on the horizon or some of the initiatives that we are anticipating as we look ahead to this rebalancing of power in our nation's capital. And why don't we start it off with trade policy? And Scott Bowes, I wanted to ask you, because Trump had put into place a number of actions. There is wide authority for the executive to act on certain types of trade issues. So we currently have tariffs on some imported steel, on a wide variety of products from China, and then some other cats and dogs from around the world. What changes can we expect both immediately and then over the longer run uh, when it comes to this type of a trade enforcement strategy? Well, Scott, you know, we can take clues from the words of, of various folks that are part of this administration, including the, the president himself, who, you know, very shortly after Election Day, gave an interview covering a lot of topics. One of them was was trade and tariffs. And he gave two big clues. One, on trade agreements, he essentially said, well, we, we probably won't be headed down that path until we focus on the needs here at home first. Obviously, there's a health crisis. Uh, there's also a need to invest in infrastructure and and just a lot of other issues that need to be settled at home. You know, but to the issue of tariffs, which you mentioned, he did give a very specific answer on that. And he said, we're not going to do anything right away. That includes the tariffs. More recently, we've, we've obviously started to have additional folks be part of this administration since President Biden was sworn in, including Janet Yellen, who will be the Secretary of, of the Treasury. 
she was just asked a question earlier uh, in the week about the, the China tariffs. And she said, uh, you know, just reiterated the position, we're going to review the tariffs on China, we're going to consult with our allies, but we're not going to be making any changes until we do both of those things. And she even took it a bit further and said, we will make uh, use of the full array of tools to counter China's abusive economic practices and hold Beijing accountable. You know, for folks who know Janet Yellen, that's a you know, she's come a long way. She didn't use, used to be, didn't sound like a hawk on China, but she certainly does now. So uh, I guess the, the early clues are that uh, probably nothing will happen immediately. And over the long term, we would expect this administration to consult with allies and, and to see if they're able to perhaps cut a deal to get more folks to uh, around the globe to, to put pressure on China. Um, but it remains to be seen. But for now, we're, we're all watching and, and waiting for additional clues. Thanks, Scott. And more broadly, when it looks to a Biden kind of proactive trade agenda, and I know from the campaign and from questionnaires and from public statements that he has said he wants a very worker-centric trade policy and investments made here at home first, but there are some business groups who are saying, well, the way to counter China is to get into the the agreement that is called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I think it's been renamed, but it was the TPP, or to enter some other trade agreements with the European Union or the UK. What can we anticipate, I guess, knowing what we do both about personnel and about what the president has said so far about its intentions with respect to launching new trade negotiations? Well, I think it's first useful to look at you know what's currently pending as the prior administration uh, leaves office and this new one takes takes over. There are currently trade negotiations going on with the United Kingdom, which, as everyone knows, just completed the Brexit departure from the European Union, and then also negotiations with Kenya. And then, of course, the most recently enacted trade agreement was USMCA, that is a, the broad agreement with Canada and Mexico. So, you know, it's possible that, you know, UK will, will get some negotiations early on. It's possible that there will be folks on the Hill asking for the USMCA to be reopened and changed to, to boost up labor rights. The folks who would be, you know, working that uh, for the administration are Catherine Tai, who, you know, was a very high profile staffer on the House Ways and Means Committee. She's been very fair and, and she's been receiving universal bipartisan praise. But the key here, I think, you know, with the big agenda and a lot of, a lot of business groups and, and folks on the Hill asking them to, to get things done, you know, I noted earlier, Biden said, well, we're not going to do anything right away, but there's a calendar issue, and that is July 1st of this year, fast track authority expires. Fast track authority is important because it allows an administration to enter into a trade deal and Congress gets a vote, but they would only get a single up or down vote, not an opportunity to amend the terms of the deal. So they either would have to get trade deals done before July 1st, or they would have to go through a very burdensome process to engage with Congress on renewing that authority, which you know, we went through it four or five years ago, whatever it was, and wow, what a process. That is explosive engagement on some really thorny issues. Like get hot this summer. All right, Scott, thank you so much. Let's shift to the Congress now. And Riley Olson, what are some initiatives that we are likely to see uh, from the House and the Senate with the understanding, of course, that you know, over the past couple of years, the House of Representatives has passed some major legislation, both from the immediate COVID relief to longer-term infrastructure investments, only to have things either bottled up or watered down in the United States Senate. But what's the outlook as we head into 2021 now? Thank you, Scott. So 
I think major infrastructure investments have been talked about uh, so long without action in DC that it's it's starting to sound the same way long-suffering sports franchises who haven't won a title in a number of years console themselves with thinking about uh, having better luck the next year. So totally understand why there's some skepticism out there, but but I do think there's a lot of appetite right now for big infrastructure packages here, you know, naturally because of the economic downturn, but also I think there's a real recognition of the need to make long overdue investments. So so we're cautiously optimistic. And I think there have been a lot of public enthusiasm. We've seen a lot of public enthusiasm as well as signaling both from Congress and the income administration that this is a real priority. And to your earlier point about some of the work that's already been done in this space, you know, we've seen a dry run of an ambitious package like this already. In 2020, the Transportation Infrastructure Committee passed a, around a $500 billion five-year reauthorization of the Surface Transportation Bill. That is a bill that sets funding levels for, for things like federal highways, transit, aviation, and rail spending. But in addition to setting investment levels, it also included a lot of enhanced by America rules, which are absolutely essential to maximizing the impact of these investments in infrastructure, which is even more important at a time like we're in now where the economy is in such rough shape. So, so we're not only going to be making these critical investments, you know, upgrading our infrastructure and creating construction jobs, but you know, we're going to be working to, to ensure these, these provisions stay in there to create jobs in manufacturing across the country. I think it's also important to note that this bill included some strong guardrails that ensure taxpayer dollars flow to firms doing their work here, both final assembly, but also throughout the supply chain and set up some guardrails to ensure that you know, state-supported uh, and owned firms from China that are focused more on capturing market share than creating value in jobs here in the US uh, are not able to, to access those dollars. And this bill, which in itself was ambitious, was actually rolled into a, a much larger package shortly after being reported out of committee that actually stopped to invest around 1.5 trillion. Uh, and I think did a really good job of looking at infrastructure more holistically. You know, often when we think of, of infrastructure, we just think of highways and bridges and trains. And while those are certainly central components that need to be included, it's really much more. So this larger bill included water infrastructure, which is so important when we still have communities without access to clean drinking water. It includes things like modernizing the energy grid, expanding broadband access, and funding to upgrade or, or build new schools. And with Strong by America rules, you know, you can make those products and materials for that types of infrastructure right here at home. Know, from the foundries that make the water infrastructure to, to optical fiber factories for broadband to the mills that make the electrical steel that's needed for energy grid modernization. So I think that experience last year could be a promising foundation for the House's work moving forward. It does get a little murkier when you move on to the Senate. There is certainly a lot of support to invest in infrastructure there. And there was a surface transport bill released last session. But I think it's been made pretty clear that with the shift in power, Senate Dems will be drawing up a new bill rather than using last session's bill. And I think it's expected that this will mean a more ambitious uh, overall package with more climate and clean energy related investments, while concerns about the deficit were pretty muted during the tax cut legislation debate back in 2017. I suspect that we'll see a lot more hand-wringing about how to pay for these investments. And that coupled with, with some of the climate provisions will certainly make a broad bipartisan effort more challenging. So I don't want to go too far in the weeds, but I would just mention that in that case, you know, I think there's a lot of expectation that the Senate sees how essential these investments are and will likely use a tool called reconciliation if they're not able to reach a bipartisan agreement. And that basically just means the Senate can move budget-related items with a simple majority rather than having to get past a potential filibuster. No easy feat when you have zero margin to lose a senator that caucuses with the Dems. So, so obviously there are a lot of steps between here and there, 
but this is definitely the time you're making these investments as, as we learned from the Recovery Act back in 2009. So, so cautious optimism is warranted, but it's, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of advocacy to, to make this a reality. Thanks, Riley. And one follow-up question, because there are certainly going to be elements of the Biden agenda that are going to engender more partisan controversy in the Congress. I'm thinking immigration is one of those issues. Healthcare is another one of those issues. But what are the interest group dynamics when it comes to infrastructure? And you know, does that lead us to believe that a big play on infrastructure might be more than just an unfulfilled campaign promise at this point? Well, I think that's a good point. I, I, perhaps I let some of the past shortcomings, uh, getting an infrastructure package over the finish line, color my thinking a bit too much, because there really is a lot of bipartisan support for a lot of this work to be done. I think there is a clear recognition that we are way behind uh, and need to make way way more ambitious investments to get our infrastructure up to speed, to maintain a globally competitive economy and, and to put our workers in a position to compete globally. So that means money for the bridges, the roads, the trains that get goods to market more quickly. And so I think there really is more potential here than in a lot of other spaces for work like that. And we've seen members from both party, uh, particularly since you know the lessons came to light around losing resiliency in supply chains last year as the COVID pandemic started to spread. But a lot of attention is being given to how can we strengthen our infrastructure and use that as leverage to rebuild a good, sound manufacturing industrial base. So I, I think there's a lot of promise there. Again, there will be some hiccups and some concerns around deficit spending, but there really isn't a better time to be doing this. If you look back at the Recovery Act in 2009 following the Great Recession, Multiple studies have shown that it was one of the most effective forms of stimulus. And I think that coupled with just the obvious need, we've talked about this at AM and on the podcast before, but the American Society of Civil Engineers ranks our infrastructure. I think it's a D or a D plus. You know, we know we can do better. I, I think both at the House and the Senate realize that. And I think it really sets us up for, for potential to be successful this year. Thanks, Riley. Let me shift to climate now and we'll bring in Brian Lombardozzi here. So already Joe Biden, through the stroke of a pen, has re-entered the United States into the uh, Paris Agreement on climate change with some carbon reduction commitments. What does this mean and what kind of an agenda is going to flow from this, both, I guess, regulatory and what they're going to ask the Congress to do? And how will that impact American manufacturing? So the Paris Agreement is not the only thing that has happened since yesterday, because President Biden has also ordered agencies to revisit tailpipe emissions and also fuel efficiency standards, which were uh, scaled back during the last administration. So that is something that's also happening. And in order for this larger package that he has in mind, that he's talked about having a new clean energy revolution occur, uh, American manufacturing is going to need to be uh, a central part of that. Basically, this pivot to clean energy is going to have to address multiple sectors of the U.S. economy, from the auto industry, which I just mentioned, getting us up to speed on electric vehicle technology, as well as, you know, figuring out how to have a less carbon intensive power sector, as well as having American made energy efficiency technologies that are sort of built for our environment here in the United States. 
as well as seeing sort of a historic investment in clean energy technology innovation. So looking at our national lab system to figure out how we can not only come up with the research and development there, but also figure out how do we deploy those innovations across factory floors in the United States. And I think very importantly, as they look at this, whether it's the administration is doing this through executive orders or whether they're doing this working hand in hand with Congress, they need to make sure they are working with frontline and fence line communities across this country because we really can't afford to leave behind any of the workers, especially in the power generation sector that have really powered the United States through the industrial revolution to the point we are now and have been kind of the backbone to a lot of the progress we've seen. We really need to make sure that the places that are pretty much tied to those areas of electrical production are included in terms of worker training, but also looking at those properties that may currently lay idle, you know, like some of the old power plants and industrial facilities, landfills and unused mines, other community assets that are there, and how do you transfer those into new economic hubs? I think there needs to be some really smart investment, and it needs to be interagency across across the government to look at the type of investments we need for not just today, but for tomorrow. And how do we make sure that some of those communities that have been struggling because of the things we've talked about in already due to trade policies and sort of a lack in industrial policy over the years, how do we make sure that those folks have it not just have a seat at the table, but have an opportunity to succeed going forward? Thanks, Brian. And we know that the president and his team have laid out a very ambitious agenda, both during the campaign with the Build Back Better plan. COVID response, and a lot of early priorities. Scapos, we talked about the trade agenda earlier, but what else do you see coming from this administration early through executive action or regulatory action that will have an impact on domestic manufacturing? Well, Scott, on on day one of the Biden administration, the, the, the president, I believe, signed maybe 17 different actions, some executive orders, some memorandums, but all getting a, a quick start on on setting the policy of, of the large administration and the, the many workers that do work for the American people. But it also looks like, based on press reports, that they will have a series of themed days in the weeks ahead, focusing on the various issues that are facing our country. Each day will have its own focus. For example, January 28th will be a healthcare focus. Uh, the 29th of January will be immigration. One that is particularly interesting to our audience, I believe, is the issue of Buy America. And it is reported that on Monday, July 25th, the administration will be signing an executive order. Now, the president will sign one on Buy America. And while we don't have many details, it, it looks as though the goal there is to try to strengthen those laws and, and make them work better for American workers so that when we spend tax dollars, we, we purchase American-made goods. Thanks, Scott. And a last question for all of you because there's both kind of new faces in the Congress, obviously, new faces in the administration. Some had served in prior administrations. But let me start with Scott and then move to Riley and Brian. Who, who are one or two folks who you're, you're keeping your eye on uh, who uh, will have an impact on our issues? I know you mentioned Catherine Ty earlier, but who else do you think is going to have an impact, Scott Bose? You know, oftentimes we focus on the, the big names at, at the top of a department or agency, but oftentimes it is, you know, the folks that are a tier or two down that have a big impact. One individual who's just a tremendously impressive individual is Nora Todd. She was a 
top staffer for Senator Sherrod Brown, and she has joined the United States Trade Representative Office as the Chief of Staff there. So she will be in a very powerful position. That's a person to watch. And on the transportation side, you know, the folks that run the various agencies, transit, highways, they have a lot of authority to set policy and to make sure that not only we're building roads and bridges, but when we do so, it's in a manner that's safe and benefits you know, American workers or American companies that are producing goods in the United States. Thanks, Scott. Riley, how about on the Hill? Who are some folks we ought to keep an eye on? Thank you, Scott. To Scott Bose's point, you know, we often focus on, on leadership and, and certainly uh, Majority Leader uh, Schumer, as well as Speaker Pelosi, will, will play a huge role. But I, I think there are a lot of other folks who have been pushing this issue for a number of years and whose time has probably come to be able to inject some of the, the experience that they've acquired in, in the manufacturing and infrastructure space into these discussions. On the, you know, on the Senate side, speaking of Nora Todd, Senator Brown, Sherrod Brown of Ohio, and his Republican counterpart from Ohio, Senator Rob Portman, have been really active. Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, as well as Senators Peters and Stabenow of Michigan, have all been really strong advocates for, for both Buy America and infrastructure. You know, on the House side, it's, it's kind of a similar thing. It's folks who've been working these issues for years now in positions where they're going to be able to influence real policy. We've already mentioned Chairman DeFazio at Transportation and Infrastructure. He'll be driving a lot of the important work there, but Chairman Pallone at Energy and Commerce is going to have a lot of opportunity to weigh in on some of that work, as well as people like Representative DeLauro of Connecticut, who has long been an advocate for rethinking how we do some of our trade policy to, to more center workers when we're negotiating those. And, and she's now chair of appropriations. And we'll be really interested to see how she's able to leverage that position to advance things like infrastructure and trade. So an exciting time all around. And there are a litany of other members I, I probably should mention, but that's just a, a handful for you. Well, I think that's a great starter list for folks. And yeah. I agree with you on uh, Rosa DeLauro that being the chair of the Approps Committee places her in an even more elevated and powerful position to advocate on behalf of workers. And, and Brian, finally on clean energy manufacturing, who within the administration or the uh, the Congress should we have our eyes on as we're looking ahead? I think definitely some of the people that Riley mentioned are people you want to keep your eyes on. In terms of uh, clean energy manufacturing in particular, I think we definitely need to look at uh, Senator Sherrod Brown again from Ohio, uh, because, you know, 10 years ago, when the Waxman-Markey bill was moving forward, uh, he was instrumental in getting the Impact Act into that, which really was uh, a piece that looked directly at how the policies around cleaning up our environment could benefit domestic manufacturers, uh, provided some investment in domestic manufacturing. So I think that is something that we may see revisited as well. Senator Markey, he is, you know, been a pusher of this Green New Deal, along with Representative Ocasio-Cortez. And I think those are folks who have some really good ideas there. And I think those are folks that need some support, but also make sure some a good dialogue with them to understand that some of the lofty goals that they have for implementing uh, environmental policy really can happen in a way that supports domestic manufacturing. I would also say, you know, among those other folks, representatives like Rashida Tlaib, who, you know, she represents Detroit. Uh, she is someone who is very pro-environment, but is also very aware of her constituency that lives in, in fence line communities, but also are employed in a lot of manufacturing industries. I think those are folks that are gonna be uh, talking a lot about this. And I think outside of the administration too, there are people 
in the administration are going to have to look to some of the states and the progress that, that they've been making over the years. You can look to California, which has sort of been the tip of the spear when it comes to some of the things around cap and trade policy, uh, conversations around carbon tax, looking at procurement laws like buy clean with the assemblyman Rob Bonta from the Oakland area who uh, helped get that policy in place. And I'll, you can also look most recently to just Governor Cuomo's state of the state address last week where you know he really talked about how New York is gonna be putting a large investment into offshore wind and not just offshore wind, but, but manufacturing and trying to figure out how to green electrical transmission. And we do still make things like electrical grade steel here in the United States and making sure that those things are, are watched as they develop on the state level and that there is good cooperation from the federal government and folks in the administration and Congress can kind of see some of those good examples and try to replicate those on a federal level. Brian, Riley, Scott, thank you so much for those insights about who we have our eyes on and the issues that we're tracking. We know that 2021 promises to be a year of opportunity for American manufacturing and for a big Build Back Better plan and an ambitious agenda on the part of uh, the incoming administration. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast. And that will do it for the Manufacturing Report this week. You can dive deeper into the issues we discussed in today's episode by listening to past episodes of our Build Back Better Blueprint series on the podcast and their accompanying blogs on AmericanManufacturing.org. As always, I want to thank AAM staff and Kat Adams in particular for their work to make this episode possible. And I'd also like to thank you, the listeners, for engaging with us and for giving us some great episode ideas. Please be sure to subscribe to the Manufacturing Report on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And let us know what you think by leaving a review and a rating. You can find us online at AmericanManufacturing.org. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. And you can connect with us on Twitter at Keep It Made in USA. I'm Scott Paul. And until next time, together, we can keep it made in America.